Welcome to the Redemption Church Podcast, located in Seattle, Washington. As a church, we are a community striving to be faithfully present to God, self, and others. We hope this is an encouragement to you in your life, no matter where you are. Thanks for joining us. This is Mark chapter 1, verses 12 and 13. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness 40 days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. This is the word of the Lord. All right, let's do it. Let's jump in. We're going to do Mark chapter 1, verses 12 and 13 today. Again, my name's Alex. If you're new here, one of the pastors, glad you're here on this uh, gloriously wet May. Um, but it is good to be together this morning. So, a couple of things. Uh, as you just heard read, we're covering the temptations of Jesus today. Now, if in case you didn't totally capture it, Mark doesn't tell you a whole lot of details about the temptations of Christ. He just reads, and Jesus was tempted and then kind of keeps moving on. Um, so we'll have to jump over to the other synoptic gospels, Matthew and Luke, who fill in the details surrounding the temptations. Mark's gospel, though, is the one that gives us one unique detail where it says uh, Jesus was among the wild animals. Two things that stand out right away about the wild animals. This is the second Adam. The first Adam in the Garden of Eden Adam and Eve are among the animals. They serve as no threat because things are all right in the world. There was no sin. But now, sin is in the world. We see the second Adam out among the wild animals, and it's a place of, of threat. Uh, the other thing that would have stood out to the early readers of Mark's gospel, this was written in roughly 65 to 68 A.D., Christians were under severe persecution during the years 64 to 68. Both Peter and Paul lost their lives in martyrdom. In Rome. This house church was gathering in Rome, and Christians were taken to the Colosseum and thrown to wild animals daily. So the early Christians would have seen this passage right out of the gate and gone, Oh, Jesus was among the wild animals. That Jesus can identify and empathize in a place of fear or danger. So those are two things that just kind of right out of the gate with this particular passage that the other Gospels don't get into. But like I said, the other Gospels, Matthew and Luke, tell us a bit more about the temptations of Christ. And so we're going to cross-reference over there. So let's jump right in. Last week we looked at uh, Jesus' baptism where the Father parts the heavens, the Spirit descends, and the Father says, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Now the scene picks up, and it transitions to immediately. In those, uh, the Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. Okay. Mark's language here is forceful. The word drove, ekbalo, meaning it's the same word that was used when Jesus would drive out demons. It was a violent word. It was thrusting. It was, it was a, uh, a very involved word. And so when it says Jesus was thrust or driven out, it's a, it's, a, it's a sense of forcefulness on behalf of the Holy Spirit. Now, it's interesting because the Holy Spirit's not in contradiction to Jesus. He's not dragging him around. 
But listen to what one theologian, Mark Strauss, he says about this particular use of the word Jesus was driven by the Spirit. Mark does not mean the Spirit acted against Jesus' will, but that the Spirit was in control of Jesus' messianic mission, impelling him forward in this urgent task. So the first thing we see right out of the gate is Jesus is under the control of the Holy Spirit. Now, when Jesus goes into a place of temptation, he did not go out wandering in the wilderness because he was curious, naive, or foolish. Jesus was not lured away from John the baptizer and the crowds all in the Jordan River confessing their sins and from the voice of the Father speaking over him because there was something else in creation that was in competition with Jesus. Jesus was under the leadership of the Holy Spirit, and the Spirit compelled him to leave not only the cities and the towns and surrounding countryside, but to head even further out into the wilderness. And notice the very first place Jesus goes. It's been told that he is the Messiah in the opening prologue, the liberator. Notice who he does not go to war with immediately. These are Roman Christians. Jesus does not go to war with Rome. Which would have shocked early Jewish leader, or readers because Jews thought the Messiah was to come onto the scene and become a great person of military and political strength. That's what the Messiah is going to do. He's going to restore the nation state of Israel, push Rome out and restore the people and reign in victory, a messianic king. And while Jesus is the messianic king, his very first opponent is not Caesar. And this is so important for us to catch. The early recipients of Mark's gospel would have noticed that immediately and gone, so the Messiah is here? Is he going to fight Rome? And the answer is not, not yet. <laughs> not, not in the way you expected him to do or maybe even the way you would want him to do. Jesus did not receive the spirit and then go take over the military or launch a political campaign and start garnering support to rule the nation. His first assignment was to go after God's arch enemy, Satan himself. And so Mark's signal to the early readers and to us today would be, Interpret this as Jesus is the son of God, did not come to dominate the world through political force. Let the reader understand. <laughs> In time, he most certainly will rule all of the physical creation. And so it's the responsibility of the church right now to take up the call to love, sacrifice, serve a world that is very wayward from the will of God and to make disciples and to be participants in the ushering in the kingdom of God. That's the call of the church. And doing so in knowledge that Jesus will return to judge the living and the dead and there will be a reckoning for all of creation. Absolutely. And yet, in order to get there, Jesus must not just treat the symptoms but he has to go after the root. So Jesus goes after Satan before he deals with Caesar.
And so in a skeptical society, like reading a passage like this, Jesus goes to battle Satan. One objection could be raised right away. Oh, so Jesus is like hyper-spiritual and doesn't have anything to do with the real world? So he doesn't want to bring order? He wants to go fight Satan in the desert? He's, he's not man enough, brave, brave enough, tough enough to handle real world problems, so he retreats and prays and does battle with Satan with no one around? Is he just a coward? Is he a weakling? Why didn't he? But Jesus, as a Jew, was not platonic. That is, Jesus didn't have a vision of life that says, spiritual life is over here and physical life is over here. Jesus would have rolled his eyes at that idea and gone, no, there's only a thing called life and there's no separating the physical from the spiritual. That's absolutely platonic. That's Greek. That's Hellenistic. That's some other philosophy. But we don't do that. As followers of God, we see God's world as a whole, and we don't see a spiritual life absolutely ripped apart and set completely apart from the world. Yeah, we live differently. We're, not, we're in the world, not of the world. This kind of language makes sense, but we don't see our spiritual life as something that's divorced from our physical life and responsibility. So when Jesus goes to do battle with Satan, he's seeing it as an integrated whole as he moves forward the kingdom of God. And so, Jesus goes to battle against Satan. And it says, and he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan and was with the wild animals and the angels were ministering to him. Okay, so Jesus goes to the wilderness, a dry desert countryside and is completely alone. He has a different relationship to the desert than you or I have, that's for sure. It's not looking like a desert out there today anyway, that's for sure. But when we go to the desert, like our family, we'll go to Palm Springs and then drive over to Joshua Tree, spend a day hiking around in Joshua Tree, and then make our way back and carry on a vacation. It's a different experience of the desert, to say the least. When Jews thought of the desert, they weren't thinking, oh, vacation, family memories, they're thinking wilderness wanderings for 40 years. They're thinking the desert was associated with danger and death, rebellion, punishment, evil, and temptation. All of those things are present in a Jewish mind when they think desert. They weren't thinking Palm Springs and margaritas or whatever. They're thinking this was a time of intense testing, great loss. A whole generation died. And it wasn't all bad. I mean, there were, there, there's a couple moments of good things that happened in the wilderness. God kept the covenant, so that was good. He did his job, and uh, he met with his people, gave them the temple or the, the tabernacle. There's, there's some highlight moments for sure that would have made the Instagram reel or whatever. Like, oh, yeah, see, it wasn't all totally bad. But mostly, the desert wilderness was a place of desperation, of threat, of death, a vulnerable place. And don't miss this, that Jesus is alone. He's isolated, secluded, as if he's the only one capable of standing up to Satan. And he is. So, 
Jesus goes to the desert for 40 days of testing or tempting. That word's the same word. And the testing comes through what the Bible calls the Satan, the adversary. And you can read about the Satan in 1 Chronicles chapter 21, Ezekiel, I'm sorry, Zephaniah chapter 3, Job chapter 1 and chapter 2. You see this adversarial accusing opponent of God and his people showing up. And he has one agenda, and it is to steal and kill and destroy. So in Matthew's gospel, we read how the temptations go down. It says, the tempter came to him and said, if you're the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. Remember, Jesus was fasting. And he waits till the end of the temptation, <laughs> of the end of the time to start hitting Jesus when he's physically weak. And notice that each temptation always begins with the same phrase. If you're the son of God, do this. All temptation comes on the heels of getting Jesus to doubt his father's words of love and affirmation and to question the core of who he is and then seek to prove his identity rather than simply living out of what his father has already said. You are my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. So brothers and sisters, the temptation doesn't change. To doubt, question, create, or prove our identity rather than simply trusting that God's words, you are my beloved and you I'm well pleased, is enough. That's the temptation. And when God's words of you are my beloved is not enough, feelings of insecurity and shame settle in quickly and they create a void as big as the sky inside of us, leaving us to frantically fill that void with something, someone, anything or anyone to plug the hole and fill the empty space that was left when we lose the idea that we are, in fact, the beloved of God. So we try on new clothing or sexualities or relationships or career changes or more vacations or start spending money, whatever it looks like, we begin to fill in those gaps to close that space because a human being can't live long not with, with the knowledge that I am not the beloved of God. We can't make it very long. In fact, we wither very quickly and we start closing that gap through whatever we think will provide momentary relief, meaning, and comfort. That's what we do when we forget we're the beloved of God. Temptation comes on the heels of losing our truest, most real, fundamental identity. And so when that moment settles in and temptation is there, we simply hand the keys of the car of our lives to one of our five senses and tell them to drive. <laughs> okay, touch, 
you drive. Okay, smell, you drive. Okay, ears, what do you want to hear? You drive. Okay, taste, what do you want to do? You drive. Okay, eyes, what have you not seen yet? You drive. When we lose the center of being the beloved, we hand over the keys to our five senses and tell them to drive. And they never take us anywhere good, do they? <laughs> At least not for long. Christianity is not about proving to the devil or to anyone else that you are a child of God. Christianity is about staying rooted and grounded in what God has already said and handling each day, moment by moment, from this posture. And here's what's very important, is our flesh will hijack even a verse like this. You're my beloved and you I'm well pleased. Our flesh will hijack that verse and go, ah, so God loves me and likes me. He must want me to indulge whatever's in front of me. If God loves me so much, well, certainly he brought this person into my life and I need to go do. But here's the thing. The love of God will never lead you to rebel against the commands or heart of God. The love of God always dead ends into the cul-de-sac called holiness. Always. The God's love and God's holiness are not in competition with one another. They work together beautifully. You'll know you're walking in the love of God when holiness starts to feel a bit more comfortable to you. Does that make sense? So the first temptation Jesus faces is physical. Satan tempts Jesus to turn stones into bread. The idea is to meet your own physical needs. You don't have to trust God. Heck, you have all kinds of power at your hands anyway. Just do it. Go ahead. But Jesus answered, it's written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And each temptation, Jesus responds, not with positive self-talk or don't screw it up talk. Jesus responds with scripture every time. He lived his life rooted in the scriptures. This is why we stay in the Bible at our church. This is why we put the Bible in the middle of what we're doing in community. This is why we bring the Bible into pastoral care situations and in our regular friendships. We keep scripture as the highest authority in our conversations to inform our thinking, to inform how we do life. So... His response was not, oh, I'm not that hungry. It's only been 40 days in the desert. I'm not that hungry. That's not how he rolled. He rolled with, no, my father has met all my needs for the last 40 days in this desert, and I'm not yielding to you now. You didn't meet my needs the last 40 days, and you're not going to meet my needs today, and you're not going to meet my needs tomorrow, and you're not going to be there for me at Calvary. You're not going to be there for anything. No. And he stays completely rooted. I'm the beloved of God. My father's well pleased in me, and I don't have to meet my own physical needs, even if it's at my own 
in, within grasp of my own fingers. Second temptation. Then the devil took him into the holy city and set him on a pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you're the son of God, throw yourself down. It's written, he will command his angels concerning you and on your hands, they'll bear you up unless you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus responded to him, again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord, your God, to the test. So since the first temptation failed, and Jesus didn't crumble under the allurement to turn stones into bread. The second was to doubt his identity and then prove himself through an act of absolutely breathtaking, nature-defying, some kind of spectacular performance. Throw yourself down and let's see the angels come down and catch you in the middle of the air. If you are the son of God, do it. Let's see it. Henry Nouwen, in a book that I read twice a year called In the Name of Jesus, <laughs> this is what he says about this temptation. He said, Jesus refused to be a stuntman. <laughs> he did not come to prove himself. He did not come to walk on hot coals, swallow fire, or put his hand into the lion's mouth to demonstrate that he had something worthwhile to say. Jesus didn't forget who he was in this moment. I'm not a stuntman. I don't owe you a show. I don't owe me a show. I don't owe anybody a show with my life. Wow. <laughs> what a centered place to live out of. I don't owe you a show. I'm not for sale. What a great place to find yourself, being someone saying, I'm just not for sale. My convictions aren't for sale. It's not being blown around by politics. It's not blown around by what I think I need right now. No, my convictions are not for sale. I'm staying rooted in the love of God. Third temptation. It's now met. It says, again, the devil took him to a very high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you will just fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. First was a physical temptation. The second was a temptation to show off, do something spectacular. Third temptation is now all about power. The kingdoms of the world in exchange for worship. And so Jesus rebukes Satan, quotes the scriptures saying, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. And so Satan leaves, Luke's gospel says, he leaves him at this moment for a more opportune time. This is one of those verses that will startle you he'll, Satan doesn't mind waiting on you he'll wait he'll wait I mean when we look around and we see lots of things in the news where people tank their lives and things go sideways 
it's not because they didn't start off strong. It's not because they didn't have great intentions. It's not because they had the worst of motivations sometimes. Satan will wait for an opportune time when we're tired, when we're weak, when we're lonely, when we're depressed, when it looks like we've forgotten that we really are the beloved of God in whom he's well pleased. He'll wait for an opportune time. That's what he does. He waits to strike again at Jesus later. And so one word of caution or exhortation would be to pay attention to your life, to be present, to show up and go, is now an opportune time for me to blow it up? Is now the time where I could really ruin my life? Some of us are sitting in front of incredible temptations day after day, and you know there's an opportunity waiting that could really ruin life. And God's word would say, stay present. You're the beloved of God in whom he's well pleased. Stay rooted in the scripture. And whatever that carrot is dangling out in front of you, you know deep down is not worth it. It's not worth it. I've never met a Christian in my life who has walked in obedience, denied the flesh, taken up their cross and followed Jesus and turned around with tremendous regret. I've yet to meet that person. But I've sat with dozens and dozens and dozens of Christians over the course of my life who have said, I did give in. I indulged whatever the flesh was in that moment. And I live with regret now. So God's word to you today is to go, okay, I'm going to remind myself that I'm the beloved of God and I'm going to stay rooted in his commands. Okay. So Mark doesn't include the fact that Jesus endured all this (laughs) and that Jesus passed the test. It's just assumed. (laughs) Because what happens in the next passage? Oh, well, he begins his ministry, then he calls his disciples, and then he starts driving out demons immediately. So we can go ahead and just assume that he dominated the devil in the desert. That's the reason why Mark just kind of keeps on moving. All right. So up until this point, you've heard the following. Jesus was obedient and was baptized. Now you've heard that Jesus, the triumphant son of God, resisted flawlessly temptation to sin. You've heard that Jesus remained completely identified or rooted in his identity as the Son of God, the beloved. You've seen Jesus masterfully use the Old Testament to war off Satan himself. And you've seen Jesus perfectly pass the test in the wilderness. And yet, that is not good news all by itself. Why? Because if you hear this, as, so now, you need to go and follow Jesus as your example and do the same things. Don't forget your identity and stay faithful to God under every circumstance. Then all you're actually hearing is every other religion in the world. You're hearing a lesson of self-improvement, 
a lesson on just try to be a better person, a lesson on escapism, a lesson on moralism. And if there's anything that won't help you in Seattle, Washington in 2022, it's just another round of try harder and be a good guy. <laughs> it's not going to work. Machen was a professor of theology in 1936 in Princeton, and he was warring against the liberal Protestant theology that was creeping into the church. Listen to what he said. What I need, first of all, is not an exhortation, but a gospel. Not directions for saving myself, but knowledge of how God has saved me. Have you any good news? That's the question I ask of you. I know your exhortations will not help me, but if anything has been done to save me, will you not tell me the facts? That was his grabbing the liberal theology of the day that was just a bunch of self-help pep talk. The devil's not really after you. Try to be a good person. There's really no judgment in the end. Every road path all leads to God in the end. It's all about universalism and pluralism, and it all works out for everyone no matter what you do in response to Jesus and the gospel. Take Muhammad, take Buddha, take Jesus, take, do whatever. It, you're gonna be, it's all gonna work out in the end. And Machen came back with going, do you not have any good news for me? Your sermons won't help me. Has anyone done anything to help my soul? And for those of us who have yielded to temptation, who know I deserve the wages of sin is death, I know I can feel it in my soul, in my bones, on my very conscience. I feel this. Has anything been done to help me? Do you, is that all you've got is a pep talk on try harder and don't give in? I need some help. In fact, I've wrecked my life, and if I don't have a Savior, I'm going to make an even bigger mess out of this thing. And there is good news. Someone has hung on a cross. Someone has defeated Satan. Someone has gone into a grave. And someone has triumphed on your behalf. Look, if you look at Jesus as your example, it will crush you. But if you look to Jesus as your savior and substitute, he'll save you. Looking at Jesus as a good example is not gonna help you. He's a great example, he's the greatest. But that also sounds a whole lot like the law. I can't do it. I wanna do it, even, sometimes. <laughs> On my best moments, I wanna do it. But I need more than an example. I need a savior. Do you need a savior? You've got one in our blessed Lord Jesus. Christianity is not good advice. In fact, it's kind of terrible advice. <laughs> Sell all you have and give it to the poor. Deny yourself, take up your cross. This doesn't sound like good advice. Christianity is not good advice. Jesus is not a life coach. <laughs> Christianity is not a set of rules to follow. Jesus comes onto the scene of world history, stands in the very center, and says, I am the fundamental answer to everything that is broken in this world. So he answered the most fundamental question about this whole passage. Why is Jesus out there in the desert anyway? <laughs> Demolishing every argument of the devil? He was not out there for his own benefit. He was out there on our behalf. He was our substitute. You see, when Jesus rises from the dead and we get language like justification, this is where that language actually comes from. Jesus' flawless life 
not yielding to temptation, that perfect life before God, that's what goes into the account of the Christian, of the one who identifies with Jesus. This is why when you hear it said, when God looks at you, he sees Jesus. He sees his only perfect spotless son. This is what we're talking about. He was in the desert, not on a, for his own benefit, but on our behalf. So where the first Adam failed, the second Adam succeeded on our behalf. So what will we do? What will we do? Hmm. Well, it, it, it feels awfully silly, honestly, to stand on a stage and like preach on the temptation of Christ. It's felt terrible all week, honestly, knowing I have to do this. Because I, like everyone in this room, am in just as much need of grace and mercy, kindness, patience, and forgiveness of God. I've got the same clay feet you do. I have the very same temptations that you do. The greed, the lust, the power, the control, the things that we want. To, to control scenarios, to control situations. We have these things inside us, and I have that temptation in me too. I'm not a fool. <laughs> I mean, I kind of am, but I say that to say I'm no different from the rest of you. And as followers of Jesus, it's not enough to be filled with the Holy Spirit it's not enough to be given the Holy Scriptures, though that's what Jesus leaned on. And that's not saying that the Holy Spirit's not enough. Hear me say that. Or the Bible's not sufficient. But I'm saying in our very real experience of the Christian faith, it cannot be done apart from each other. Like the gift of the gospel is not just a personal, private relationship that you do with God in your head where you think about him sometimes or you come to church 1.8 times a month or whatever the average church attendance is. Like, that's not going to do it. It's not gonna be enough to get an app on your phone that will read you the Bible every once in a while or check out a sermon or read some blog somewhere. That's not enough. Have you noticed yet that that's not working for any of us? But the times in which you find yourself actually flourishing as a follower of Jesus and not yielding to temptation happens to be when you're actually like really close to somebody in community. When somebody is there to look you in the face and say, hey, I see what you're struggling with, man. I've been down that same stupid road. I got you. You're not that strange. Every temptation is common to man. That's what Paul tells us. So I know what that feels like. I know, I know what that feels like growing inside you. And so the only way that we're going to actually finish the race and do the call of a faithful follower of Jesus is to humbly open our lives up and to say, here's the wound. Can you come and be present to me? This is where I'm struggling. This is where I'm tempted. This is where I'm thinking about ruining my life, honestly. Can you speak into that? And not to do it like some kind of just religious cop. But like, can you speak to me in a way that the father would speak to me? Because right now I'm, I'm missing him. 
I forgot that he loves me. I forgot that's why I want to go do the dumb things I want to do. I've not thought about that in a long time. I let other people think about the love of God, but I don't experience it for myself. I just stand by the fire, and I just warm myself by the fire, and I think a nice thought every once in a while, but I don't have the nerve or the audacity to actually stand in the fire and be burnt up, which is the invitation of the gospel to not admire Jesus as an example, but to step into Christ, be filled with the Spirit, Savor him as our savior and substitute who wants to live with us. And of all the places that Jesus could live, he's chosen the very interior of your own self. That's really good news. (laughs) And the only way we're going to finish this race as followers of Jesus is if we start to open our lives up to one another. It doesn't mean you have to open every single detail of your life up. Please don't to everyone in this room. That might go crazy. But I am saying, use your head. Think, look around. Find a brother and a sister around you and go, hey, I seriously want you to walk with me. I don't need you to be a cop. I don't need you to check me every five seconds to make sure I didn't go 36 and a 35. I'm not asking for that. But I am saying, hey, here's my struggles. Here's my temptation. Here's where I think I might make a mess out of my life. Can you walk with me? And as a non-intrusive but just loving brother or sister, can you just walk with me in this? It's this horizontal relationship that we've been given in order to battle our own temptations. And you know it and I know it. The moments we've all indulged our temptations are when we're alone. Not just physically alone. When we've like relationally, existentially, experientially, we've set distance between ourselves. And then we close that gap of being the beloved with some kind of false comfort. You know what I'm saying? I love you, church. I love you with all my heart. I do. I love this church more than anything in the whole world. And it is a pleasure and an honor to walk with you as one of your pastors and certainly your brother in this. If you feel tempted, if you feel weak, there's a Savior for you. And there's a church community around you. So my encouragement to you today is to take a moment as we take communion maybe, thank God for the friends you've got in your life who have helped you stay on the path. (laughs) And um, if you feel like you might be starting to drift in an area of your life, don't leave today without talking to a pastor or a friend about that and saying, hey, I want to finish this race. Can you, will you walk with me? Can we get coffee this week or go get a tea or whatever? And just, can we just walk the lake or something if it's not like a hailstorm or whatever? And like, just spend some time together. Do it. This is what it means to be faithfully present to God. It translates in being present to yourself and being present to each other in a really beautifully faithful way.